Hi, this is Paula. And I'm Joseph, and you're listening to Life Lived Better. Hey there, how are you today? I am doing well. I'm uh, got a little cold snap going here. Yeah, this weather is nuts. It's it's cold, it's hot, it's cold, it's hot, it's snowing. It's just insane. Today it's, it's beautiful. Yesterday it was snowing. I don't understand it. <laughs> I don't either. It's Texas. And uh, people say that about Texas. I guess it's true. What do they say? If you don't like the weather, just wait a day. Exactly. It'll change. <laughs> Good, because I don't like the weather. I have a tiny little heater down by my feet. I have one of those at work. We're not supposed to. It's a fire hazard, but don't tell anybody. <laughs> Just told the whole the whole world. I know. All three of our listeners now I know. know that I have a heater. <laughs> I, know. I hope none of them come by and, and get you on it. Well, so today we're going to talk a little bit about addiction, right? Yeah, the big one, the love yeah. of our life. Something we both spent a lot of time studying, researching, and talking with clients about, and you talking with your students about, I would imagine, oh, all, all day or time. Day. It's, it's our life, isn't it? Yeah. However, though, I find myself like I talk a lot about addiction, but at the same time, I talk not a lot about addiction. Um, I mean, I always say that addiction is kind of a symptom of something underlying. Mm-hmm. That's kind of my overall idea of addiction. Um, So we spend a lot of time, I've spent a lot of time with clients working on, you know, what's going on under the surface, if there's stress or if there's, you know, dysfunction happening. Um, So a lot of different things that can kind of, you know, lead into addiction. So triggers and, you know, cravings, things like that. Um, But I think addiction in general, for me, um, I know we have the formal uh, definition we can talk about in a minute, but for me personally, I look at it as, you know, people that are planning behaviors around, you know, where they can drink or where they can get drugs, their lives are kind of out of balance, they're, you know, picking drugs or alcohol over going to work or over family, um, you know, it's impacting relationships, it's impacting just overall your life and how you're living your life, how well you're functioning overall. Yeah, I think that's a, a good way to look at it. Uh, when people ask me, I think like we've got like diagnostic criteria, but to me, like just the lay definition or for me is if you are using substances and it's causing trouble in your life in some way and you keep doing it anyway, mm-hmm. you know, no, no one is going to continue to do something that's harming them or someone that they love unless it's a problem. All right. You know, we do that with a lot, uh, you know, we do that with other things too. And uh, that's when uh, there's definitely an issue there. If you can't or don't stop after yeah. you've been asked or you've wanted to, then it's worth looking at. And I think that's one of the other, you know, big symptoms of addiction is just kind of overall denial mm-hmm. and, you know, not necessarily you know, being, I think being aware of it on some level that it's impacting lives around them, but not being willing to kind of like look at it or discuss it. And then when a family member or someone brings it up, you're kind of forced to, but that's when you see people try to pull away or try to shift the topic, try to change, you know, the narrative and really, you know, don't want to look at those, those behaviors, Mm -hmm. how they're impacting. Denial is, I mean, denial is a pretty, I mean, it's an amazing thing. It's um, like people in denial don't, they're not lying. They really don't see things. Mm -hmm. 
the way they are. And it's just, it's such a, I mean, it's a, it's an amazing tool because it can really keep you blind to what's really happening in your life. It's a, it's a, it's so powerful. It's just, it keeps people sick a lot longer than they need and have to be. It's truly amazing. And I don't know why it's such a profound symptom of addiction, but it really is. It's just, it's pretty strong. When you say addiction, I think a lot of people immediately go to alcohol and drugs. And when we talk about addiction, there's a tremendous amount of things that, you know, can be labeled as addiction. Oh, yeah. I have a few of them. What about sugar? Oh, yeah. I always say sugar is my drug of choice. Wow. Me too. I, I jokingly said to my doctor the other day or my dentist, he asked me about addiction and he, he was incredibly informed. I was uh, quite impressed, but he said something about sugar. And I said, oh, I said, when it comes to sugar, it's 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 black or white for me. There's not I'm not going to eat three Girl Scout cookies. I don't know how to do that. I'm going to eat three boxes of Girl Scout cookies, <laughs> you know, so I'm either going to have sugar or I'm not, I don't, can't dabble in sugar so that people are, people have that issue with like cocaine and, you know, it's like, I, I get that because I am so addicted to sugar and it is yeah. physically addicting too. Mm -hmm. You know, not all substances are physically addicting, but uh, sugar happens to be one that is caffeine is one that is nicotine opiates, alcohol, benzodiazepines. So the medication you take for um, anxiety, mm -hmm. those are physically, you know, I, I've heard doctors explain it as um, like a behavioral addiction versus a medical addiction. Mm, yeah. Uh, and that's medical when your body, body needs it. Right. Becomes dependent upon it. Yeah. Boy, so I, I, have need a, it. I have a funny story. So one thing I always talk about with clients is, you know, part of, you know, part of the addiction side of things are, you know, things that actually positive that can come from it and that, you know, your, your focus to look for it, find it, hunt it, like that is all energy that can be channeled into, you know, work or building a business. Some of the most successful people I know are recovering addicts and it's mm -hmm. because they take that same drive and kind of focus on, you know, something positive. But I will tell you, no joke, sugar has always been a problem in my life. And when I was a kid, my parents, I was overweight. So my parents did their best to try to keep things, you know, out of range, but typical addict in me found ways around. And so I would take my $2 of lunch money and I would stop at the Circle K on the way to my school. And I would buy these little pickle salt packets for a nickel a piece. And then when I got to school, I'd sell them for a quarter. Oh, look at yeah. you. So I would hustle and make ah. some money and I would take that money to buy whatever I wanted at lunchtime and to stop back at the Circle K on my way home and buy, you know, more candy, more junk. And then I just hit it. I hit it from my parents. That's a, that's a, that's a, that's addiction right there. Yeah, I absolutely. mean, that's huge. And yeah. you didn't do that to hurt somebody. No. You know, I mean, you probably myself. wanted to not go through that. I mean, people don't want to do things that hurt other people. They don't want to be deceptive and do things behind people's back. You know, they don't, that's why I think it's important for people. If you have someone in your life that you, that you love who has an addiction and they're hurting you. I think it's important to hear that, that that person loves you and they would like it to be different. Mm -hmm. They're not just sneaking around, just trying to hurt you and lying to you just to you know get you or something. It's not as 
it is manipulative in many ways, but it's not manipulative in a way that like with, with malice, Mm -hmm. it's so hard to understand when you're the one being hurt. I think there's a certain point when you go from, you know, being maybe what we would call a normal recreational user and kind of cross that line into, you know, full-blown addiction. Somebody once told me that, you know, once you, um, what is it? Once you, you go from a cucumber to a pickle, can't ever go back to a cucumber. So once you've crossed that line into addiction, you don't ever go back. Yeah. You know, it's something that you have to manage for the duration of your life. Right. And there is a lot of controversy um, and people, you know, in our profession, there are many ideas around what, what it looks like for the rest of your life. Once you have had an addiction treated, Mm -hmm. you know, there are some people who believe that if you go to treatment for like a heroin addiction, for instance, that you could never, ever, ever use any substances period the end. Uh, When, when others think if you didn't have a problem with alcohol, you possibly can socially drink. And that's one of those, um, I think we can debate it forever. And, and that's why it's, I think it's so important that we recognize everybody is different. And yeah. I can't say that what's true for one person is true for another person. It is really individual and everyone has to kind of make those decisions about their, their life on their own. And they have to make them with good information from a lot of people helping them make those decisions and yeah. certainly not deciding to make them so quickly. Not just, I wouldn't recommend anyone use any substances right after they get out of treatment. No, <laughs> you know, that's, no, but it happens. Yeah, it does. And I know people that, you know, I have someone that I know that, you know, was a cocaine addict and, you know, now drinks and doesn't have a problem with alcohol, but it was kind of a you know, it was a scary thing. And I know other people in my life and people that I've, you know, had as clients that had, you know, addictions to a substance or to alcohol, and they're able to, you know, use something else or able to use marijuana or use alcohol without binging or, you know, it affecting their life. Absolutely. That uh, recovery is so different. I mean, there's something we call the recovery movement. And it's, you know, it's people who for the last 10 years or more have been just trying to bring the idea of recovery into the mainstream, like, because we don't understand addiction in society as a whole, but we certainly don't understand what recovery is. And their mantra is a person's in recovery. When they say they're in recovery, you can't judge a person's recovery by another person's measuring stick, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, that's something I think has changed great, you know, in, 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 the practice of addiction counseling. When I first got into this field, we totally judged it by one way. It was this way. Yeah. And it was like, that was just the only way. And I could look at you and tell you if you were in recovery or not, those days are gone. We don't, we don't look at things like that anymore. And I like that. I like that idea that it's more individualized that when you, when, if you think you might have an addiction, if anyone has ever, you know, if you've ever been in treatment before, you were ever treated like that, that it's just one way. I hope that's good news for you. Hopefully you, you hear me saying that and you recognize that you might be able to go get treatment again now, and it would be different than it was, um, you know, just a while back, just a few years ago. You mentioned about how we don't talk a lot about addiction in treatment, you know, like in residential treatment in Texas, 
clients are required to be in services like 30 hours a week when they're in residential treatment. And it's only a couple of those hours that we ever, that we talk about addiction, you know, that it, mm-hmm. the, 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 the rules specify a certain number of hours of like drug and alcohol education because drugs and alcohol, hundred percent agree. It's just a symptom of a greater problem. And that's what we deal with in treatment is what, what's going on in your life. That's causing you to want to numb that pain right. or that stuff going on. And then how do you, how do you deal with life after you leave here without substances? And so we're talking about life skills and managing stress and dealing with anger and dealing with emotions and dealing with your family and learning how to work at, without substances. And just every aspect of your life is what we're talking about in treatment. And yeah, I think that's pretty remarkable. I frequently wish I could take about a year off and go to some place and just work on every aspect of my life. <laughs> Too bad <laughs> right. you have to have an active addiction to do it. Yeah. I always tell people, you know, when you're in treatment, it really is. It's a, I, I say it's a luxury. I mean, to be able to kind of step away from your life for 30 days and not worry about anything except yourself mm-hmm. and, you know, what you're working on, what's right in front of you. The scary part is that after that 30 days, you have to, you know, step back out into the world and all of that stuff is still there waiting for you. Yeah, it doesn't change because, you know, I I know a lot of people in treatment, they work their butts off and then they say like, but my wife or my mom or whoever, they think I'm the same. And uh, well, your family members, your loved ones, they're not in there they're not, they don't get to go to treatment like you. Mm -hmm. So they are the same, the whole, all the systems you're going to walk into, you're walking right back into the same systems, which is why there's such a high potential for a recurrence of use. I mean, I, I think people don't understand that either. Like if you went to treatment and you stopped, why would you ever do it again? You know, like people Mm -hmm. are stupid or people are just selfish and it's not easy early in recovery to just not use. I mean, it's just not, it's not that simple and easy. I mean, it's right. maybe it's simple, but it's not that easy. It, whenever you have something that gets you through, that numbs the pain because the pain is so great, that helps you get through your day of work, gets through whatever, get, get you through your, your life. Of course, you're going to want to to turn to it unconsciously it's like taking a fish out of water and saying right. go swim right you know like everything you know because you know you you had a a pretty good definition of uh, of addiction I, I thought it you your your definition was that it's a chronic relapsing disorder that is characterized by compulsive seeking of the substance substance and using it despite consequences and harmful consequences and it makes long-lasting changes to the brain that's the part because it's a brain disorder so when you use substances for such a long time it changes the pathways in your brain Mm -hmm. so when you just take the substance away those pathways still exist and so of course the immediate and unconscious behavior is to pick up a substance when something's going on right Right. Makes sense to me. Yeah, absolutely. I always use the example of like, you know, if you're used to drinking at a sporting event and you take drinking out of the equation, like make sure you have, you know, something in your hand, have a Sprite, have a, you know, a bottle of water. It helps your brain make a connection that there's something there. 
you know, it may not be the same something, but it minimizes some of that, you know, some of that craving or some Mm -hmm. of that, that risk by just having, you know, I tell people, if you're going to go to a social event, you know, get a, get a tonic or a Sprite and throw a, throw a lime in there. It looks like you have a cocktail. People are going to leave you alone. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. I don't know what the pressure is, but people who drink, they want other people to drink so bad. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And, uh, uh, yeah, once they see something like that, they probably won't even ask you again. It's a it's a weird thing. Yeah, it's yeah. people tell me that all the time that they really worry that you know they're going to get pressured. And I honestly, you know, I can say when I've been out with friends, when I was younger, yeah, they would you know encourage you to take shots or you know have a drink. And as an adult, definitely, you know, people will you know buy you a drink or you know send one your direction. But for the most part, I don't feel like. In my adult life, that's been an issue, like being pressured to drink. You know, it's just like I'm not drinking, not a big deal. Nobody, you know, thinks anything of it. But mm-hmm. I think in our heads, we really think that people are thinking about us and they're thinking about, you know, why, why are they not drinking? What, you know, what's going on that they can't have a drink? And and I, I don't think that's happening most of yeah. the time. Well, and I think as an adult, if you are surrounded by people who are peer pressuring you like adolescent, <laughs> maybe you're not surrounding yourself with the right people mm-hmm. because I, that's, I don't think that's what an adult supportive relationship looks like. So one of the things that I think is so remarkable about like 12 step programs is a 12 step program. And, and, and there's so many ways that you can uh, use for recovery, it certainly doesn't have to be a 12-step program, but because it is kind of just one of the longer uh, running fellowships for support. And when I say 12 steps, I mean things like Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, um, you know, programs like that. Uh, they exist all over the world and you may have to remove or reduce the time you spend with some of your old friends if they are pressuring you or you feel mm-hmm. the pressure to drink or use around them. So you walk into a place like that and it's like suddenly you have all these people who care about you and support you just because you have a substance use issue just like they did or do and they support you. So it's pretty neat if you aren't sure, you know, if you're afraid of being alone or you're not you don't want to go around the old people or don't feel like you should. Well, there are people there that will support you. And 12-step programs are completely free. Mm-hmm. They don't cost money. And you can find one like in every town mm-hmm. in every country and ev- everywhere. Globally, you can find them on a cruise. Yeah, isn't it? I mean, it's amazing. <laughs> and and there are some uh, like little terms and things that uh, people in 12-step programs use a lot. Go, You can have somebody in a and the airport page someone who's a like a, a member of a 12-step program using some of the little terminologies and and they would just like go pick up a white courtesy phone if somebody calls for someone in you know in, in who needs help and somebody in recovery would do that it's it's a a remarkable thing of of how much uh, service people in recovery provide to other people mm-hmm. trying to recover. It's a uh, pretty remarkable. I don't know that it's I've seen that step. happen anywhere else. Yeah. People come running. If you have trouble, people come running to help. It's a great resource for people. And I think a lot of people get scared to walk into a room of people that, you know, they don't know what I always tell people like that's you, you automatically have something in common with these individuals. So mm-hmm. you're not walking into a room of strangers if you look mm-hmm. at it that way. Yeah, it, it, it is. So 
interesting to me, so unique to walking into a 12-step meeting. So many people from so many different backgrounds in every possible mm-hmm. way, mm-hmm. age, gender, socioeconomic. I mean, just uh, people that never, ever would be together for any other reason, but addiction is the thing. It's the tie that binds them. Mm-hmm. And that means a lot to people in recovery and people in recovery generally believe that the only way they can stay in recovery and maintain that serenity in their life and not going back to substances is by helping other people. Mm-hmm. And so people are, people do it to stay, to stay in recovery themselves, because when we're helping other people, well, we aren't thinking about ourselves and our own problems. Right. And that is the 12th step. I mean, it's, it's the last of the steps because you have to kind of work through your own stuff. But the 12th step is carrying the message and, and doing acts of service, you know, giving back to the community. Mm-hmm. So you don't just keep this all to yourself. You, you, you give it to other people, you teach other people, you support other people. Mm-hmm. So if someone, if, if someone was determined to, yeah, it looks like you have an addiction to substances and they were to go to treatment, like if they were to go to outpatient treatment, what would they do? I mean, what would that look like? What would they be getting into? So like the outpatient that I run, basically we Again, we talk a little bit about the addiction. We talk about, you know, what that looks like, what the definition is. I rarely, you know, label people alcoholics or addicts out loud. Like I have an idea, you know, clinically what I what I believe. Um, and I tell clients that, that if, you know, if you want my opinion, ask for it. But I'm not just going to assume that everybody sitting here is an alcoholic or an addict because that's rarely the case. We get into all types of topics. We talk about, you know, stress and anger management. We talk about coping skills. We talk about, you know, this past week we talked about triggers and we talked about thinking errors, um, different messages that get programmed into us that we grow up believing, you know, how to change those things. Um, criminal thinking, manipulation, all of the stuff that kind of comes uh, comes along with addiction in all of its forms. And then we also talk about the different types of addiction. So, you know, we talk about AA and NA, but there's also Overeaters Anonymous, there's Love Addicts Anonymous, there's Cocaine Addicts Anonymous, there's Gamblers Anonymous, there's Sex Addicts Anonymous. I mean, there are a lot of groups and support out there. AA and NA are gonna be the the largest numbers. They're gonna be the ones that you're gonna be able to find easily. And I know here locally, I'm not sure if it's a global app, but like there's a app called Meetings for AA that you can download to your phone open it up and it pulls up your geolocation and shows you meetings that are within whatever radius you select with the times, what type of meeting. Same thing for NA, it's just called NA. And, you know, those are both really great resources or you can go to aa.org or na.org and, you know, get that information. So, you know, a quick Google search, you can find most things you need, but, you know, we talk about those resources. We talk about, you know, participating in different things in order to see what works best for you. I've said it before, you know, I don't believe that we're all gingerbread people. And so what works for one doesn't work for the other. And I believe that a lot of people have to kind of go on that journey and figure out what works for them. Mm-hmm. You know, my my want is to support them and to give them resources and to guide them. Mm-hmm. But I want them to figure out, you know, what it is that they're getting the most out of. Mm-hmm. And are you doing that with them in group counseling or in individual counseling? How does that work? 
both. So we do most of the folks that I see for groups are also attending individual counseling. So individual sessions are a chance to kind of talk about things that maybe you don't want to bring up in the group session. Um, they're also a chance to an opportunity to, you know, expand on things that come up in the group setting. Mm -hmm. So we we spend a lot of time working on specific goals and, you know, things that, you know, can help overall just live better lives and, you know, addressing, you know, I spend a lot of time working with people on relationships, you know, mm -hmm. issues and relationships, how, you know, the addiction has affected the relationship or just overall, you know, their communication and, you know, the way they interact with one another, the love languages and the types of communication data versus, you know, emotional and, you know, recognizing these things in order to effectively communicate. Mm -hmm. And if people that they loved wanted to be involved in, in their recovery and in, in them getting better and being of support, can family members participate in some way? Yes. Most treatment facilities are going to have a family um, participation group where they, they encourage, you know, family to come in. And that way you can, you know, you can, it's usually just one or two times. So out of a, you know, 28 day, 30 day period, um, at least most of the places that I've worked. And so you, you know, have to tackle a lot of information in a very short amount of time. So, you know, it's good that the family has the opportunity to kind of talk about some things and to express, you know, their, their feelings and kind of what they've experienced. Um, but I definitely recommend that after treatment that people continue to do, you know, some family therapy because you can't possibly get to everything that you need to get through and, and work through everything that needs to be worked through in one or two sessions. No, absolutely not. I think becoming a better person is just a lifetime journey. It's not mm -hmm. a, for all of us. So, um, we talked a little bit about outpatient and then we talked about residential. So outpatient people generally like have jobs and, and they live their life and then they spend 10 hours a week ish, you know, just going to treatment. And if people are in residential treatment, they live there basically mm -hmm. for the time they're there 24 hours a day and they get 30, 40 hours a week of actual treatment. So how, how does someone decide which one a person should do, whether they should live there in residential or they should uh, live their life during the day and go to outpatient in the evening. I look at kind of the, the patterns. If they're a chronic, you know, relapser, then to me, that's someone that more than likely needs to go inpatient. If they are continuing to, you know, make life altering choices and, you know, really affecting relationships and the people around them, then that's probably someone that needs to go inpatient to get the tools. And you get a lot of tools in outpatient. So, you know, working with criminal justice, it's kind of backwards. Every, you know, the continuum of care is you started inpatient and then you kind of work your way down to outpatient and aftercare, you know, and criminal justice, it's the opposite. You started outpatient and then if you keep making mistakes, you go inpatient. So there's different routes. But I think, um, I, again, I think it comes back to kind of a personal choice because you can force someone into residential treatment. And I've seen a lot of that, like the family members really insist and they tell the individual that unless you do this, like we're not going to participate in your life. And so, you know, someone comes in and that's their, you know, their reasoning behind coming in, but they're not actually in a place that they want to recover, you know, or they want to work on that stuff. So I think they, the person, the individual person has to make the choice. And I think we've talked about this before, you know, as a therapist, we present the information and maybe we have an opinion about it, but we leave it up to the client to make the choice. 
Absolutely. And you might, if you're pushing someone into treatment, you may, you may be making a mistake because there might, a time might come when they're ready and they, you've kind of already spoiled the, <laughs> spoiled it for them by forcing them. So that's a, and then I guess the one question people often ask me is like, does insurance pay for treatment? And that's uh depends on your insurance and mm-hmm. uh, they're supposed to, and there's not supposed to be discrimination. We, we do have parity laws in the United States where you're not supposed to be discriminated against. Uh, your insurance can't cancel you because you go to treatment and such, but uh, whether or not they pay for outpatient counseling or residential treatment has a lot to do with the severity of your addiction and what substance you're addicted to. And one thing I know everyone asks me this, and I thought it would be important to talk about is, can you get addicted to marijuana? You know, (laughs) can you, and it's going to be, it's legalized in places now. So, you know, that's kind of a game changer in treatment. And, and I, I'm not like advocating for or against legalization, but um, the statistics say about 9% of people who regularly use marijuana are addicted to it. So it is not one of those high, uh, it's not high on the list. Can you become addicted? Yes, you can. Are there withdrawal symptoms? Yes, there are. It's just not up on the list. It's not comparable to something like cocaine or methamphetamine. Um, and I think we, you, you've got to look at that thing we talked about in the beginning. Is it causing you problems? Mm-hmm. And, is, and you're doing it anyway? Well, then there's probably something like an addiction going on. It's not causing you problems, may not be a problem. Right. I deal with that a lot with the population that I work with that, you know, a lot of folks I see are are coming in because they've either got some kind of possession or, you know, substance related charge. And and a lot of people I see are, are marijuana specific and, you know, are people that are on probation for maybe completely different offenses, but they can't pass a drug screen. They continue to smoke. And that Mm -hmm. to me, is a sign that there's a bigger problem. Like if you are, you know, looking at potentially losing your freedom or major consequences, money, time, and you still continue to make that choice. And that to me is someone that more than likely has a problem. Absolutely. And you and I have, uh, we have some, some stories and uh, one day perhaps we will um, talk about those. We've always joked that we're going to write a book uh, talking about all the excuses we've heard people give us (laughs) when they get a dirty urine screen and swear they didn't use substances. And boy, do we have some stories, but uh, that is, I mean, if, if you, then it's not about the, whether it's addictive or the legal where, whether it should or shouldn't be illegal that's the argument a lot of people make, but if you're smoking marijuana or eating it or ingesting it in whatever way, if you're using marijuana and you're on probation with the possibility, with the risk of going to jail and you smoke anyway, doesn't matter about whether it should be legal or not. What matters is you're putting your freedom Mm -hmm. on the line. You might have a problem. Yeah. You know, you might have a problem and I don't, I just don't think it's worth the risk. Not at all. Whether it should or shouldn't be legalized is not the issue at that point. I agree. And I think that's, you know, that's a rational way of thinking about it. And a lot of times when you're dealing with addiction, that's not rational. You know, it, it doesn't I always tell people you can't think your way out of addiction. Like mm-hmm. you, 
I, I believe that it has to be action-based and that you have to, you know, take some actions in order to recover. Um, that's just my personal belief. I do think a lot of change has to go into your thinkings, but I think it's it's a combination of things mm-hmm. in order to, you know, recover. But, you know, marijuana is definitely something that I spend a lot of time dealing with talking about. And, you know, my take on it is if you want to use it, then live somewhere where it's legal. But, you know, mm-hmm. if you live here in Texas, it's not legal. And so (laughs) basically, if it's, you know, it's black and white, if you use it, you're breaking the law, no matter what you're using it for. Do Mm -hmm. I think it has, you know, some medicinal, you know, purposes? Do I think it's, you know, people can use it and not be addicted to it? You know, absolutely. But again, the folks that I'm dealing with are coming in, you know, dealing with charges and are on probation and the fact that you continue to use, you know, in those situations like that's, you know, that's a problem. Absolutely. Again, I don't, I don't necessarily believe that that makes you an addict or that makes you well, an addict. I mean, I can't think of anything else, you know, sometimes it's just poor choices. And I I hear this a lot, like I grew up in a family smoking and so it's just normal. You Mm -hmm. know, I don't, I don't get why it's a big deal, you know, or the whole, you know, it's legal in different places. So, I mean, there's lots of, like you said, there's lots of different things that we've heard over, over the years, but you know, it, it comes down to your choices and the consequences and how big those consequences are and what risk you're willing to take. You know, if you're willing to take the risk of losing your freedom, then, you know, more power to you, but smoke it up. Does it not make <laughs> sense to me? Exactly. You know? Yeah. That's, the, that's the, yeah. Your freedom is a lot. Your freedom is a lot. And that has nothing. I just, it's, it's, that is simple. If you yeah. do not have an addiction. Okay then don't, don't use substances for the next six months that you're on probation. Easy peasy, right? If it's not so easy, you might have an issue, you know, Mm -hmm. there might Mm -hmm. be something going on. So uh, I guess we ought to just run down the 11 criteria if you're looking at it from a clinical diagnosis. So uh, if a person's using more than they uh, meant to, Mm -hmm. or, you, you know, over a period of time, you know, increasing the amount of use, they want to stop, but they can't. They can't decrease it. Um, they spend a whole bunch of time getting it, using it, recovering from it. Like you said, when we first opened, it's like just part of the, their life. It's kind of mm-hmm. off balance. They crave it. They kind of want it. You know, they think about it when they're not around it. They don't seem to manage what they're supposed to be doing at school or at work or at home because of the use. So kind of gets in their way. And they use it even whenever it's causing problems in their relationship. They give up stuff in their life, you know, like fun with friends or, or a social engagement or something at work because of substances. And even if they're in danger, puts them in danger, they'll, they'll use it again. And they might have uh, physical or psychological problems that are heightened by the use. They would continue to use it tolerance, like you need more to get the same effect. And then the final one is if you stop taking it, there's some kind of uh, withdrawal symptoms. Now you don't have to meet all those criteria. Uh, I think you only have to meet um, a a couple of them because addiction is on a spectrum like autism, um, like, like many things you can have a really mild addiction if you have a couple of those. And then getting up to four or five, it's kind of moderate. And then when you get up to six or more, then you've got a severe substance use disorder and severe, someone's probably going to need to go to residential treatment 
the folks mm-hmm. you're you're working with, uh, you know, they probably have two or three, and maybe it's a little more mild um, because they can they have a little stability in their life and they are able to go outpatient. Yeah. So it's uh, that that's the clinical part I thought was worth kind of just throwing in there. I think something that you know is missing from that list is like planning around it. You know, a lot of people spend a lot of time planning around, you know, where they're going to go eat if there's a bar or, you know, what, who, who they're going to be with, you know, and that's going to be okay with, you know, drinking or smoking beforehand. Um, so that's, to me, that's a big, big symptom of somebody that has a problem is that they spend a lot of time just kind of only doing things where they can, you know, participate in their addiction. Absolutely. I had a client describe it to me one time as um, when they took a road trip, it wasn't how many miles, it was how many beers. <laughs> That's like a 10 beer trip. You know, this is how many beers or however many drinks I know I can have before I get there. Yeah. I mean, that that's some some planning around it, uh, you know, making sure you have it. I, I do that with food. Mm-hmm. You know, if I'm going to go to work, I got to make sure if I'm going to be there for X amount of hours, I've got to have a power bar or something in my bag because I don't want to be in a place without food. Mm-hmm. Lord help me if I have to go a couple of hours without eating. Right. <laughs> I thought that was just proper planning. I didn't right. know that meant addiction. I think <laughs> we could talk a whole other episode, if not more episodes on some of these other things that people can be addicted to that aren't substances. Oh, yeah. There's so many. We'll have to do that. So some of the, the things that uh, factors that can lead to the likelihood of developing an addiction. So oh, let's cover good. some yeah. of those. Like, um, you know, one thing that I always dive into is family. Uh, it's, it's an extensive part of the intake process that I go through with clients is, you know, what is the family history? Because I find that if there's a family history, a lot of times there's, you know, it, it kind of I don't want to say it gets passed down, but it's, you know, it's something that can be a learned behavior or it can be, maybe it is passed down. I don't know. There's a lot of, there's a lot of discussion around, you know, how you get an addiction, but I definitely think environment plays a big part. Mm -hmm. Um, And if you grow up around it. And even if someone in your family is addicted to something else. Mm -hmm. You know, it might manifest in you as a, as another kind of addiction. Like if there's a workaholic, you know, that, that is a compulsive behavior Mm -hmm. and it meets many of the addiction criteria. Maybe it just with you, it happened to be, you know, substances, but it's the kind of the same behavior. And that's exactly what happened to me. Like I, you know, my sister that passed, she was, she struggled with her addiction her entire life. And I, I, you know, I could look at that and see that, you know, drugs, drugs are not good. Alcohol is not good. I need to stay away from that. But sugar, absolutely was my drug of choice you know all of the behaviors that go into addiction I had you know and and but I knew at a very early age like that is dangerous and I need to stay away from that because I can see how it's affecting you know my sister I can see how that ripple effect is affecting the family and you know I didn't see anything wrong with sugar because who's that gonna hurt it's not a big deal exactly well and it's so much easier to get especially at a young age you can Mm -hmm. obtain sugar without anyone blinking an eye you can some of the addictions in our society are rewarded something like workaholism you know Mm -hmm. that that can get some awards and a pat on the back like look at you look what you're doing for your family 
Yeah. Um, just, you know, with, uh, with, uh, alcohol and other drugs, it, it's not as, as acceptable. Well, alcohol sometimes, yes, it is more socially acceptable, but you can't, um, you're not going to get an award for smoking methamphetamine at, at the <laughs> Thanksgiving dinner table, but okay. dad who can't be there because he's performing a, a really important surgery, he might get kudos for missing mm -hmm. Thanksgiving dinner. What else is on that list? One of the other ones that I, I think is really, really important. Also something I spend a lot of time talking to clients about is mental health disorders. Mm -hmm. So an underlying, you know, issue with depression or anxiety or bipolar disorder, a lot of people have underlying mental health issues that are not being treated. And that leads to, you know, finding something that helps them feel better, helps them feel normal, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. So oftentimes I, I, I refer a lot of people out for evaluations, mental health evaluations, because, you know, I can generally, based on kind of the information that I gather, you know, look at that and see if this is somebody that's struggling potentially. And I want them to get a formal diagnosis. I want them to go to, you know, a psychiatrist and let them make that decision with the client. Mm -hmm. Um, a lot of people struggle with that. There's a lot of, you know, we've talked about that in a previous episode, as far as medications and the stigma attached to, you know, that and mental health. So it's difficult, but I do believe that if you have an underlying mental health issue, that it has to be addressed in order for a person to recover from yeah. an addiction. And I think we had said on that previous episode, it's, it's over 50% of people have both. Mm -hmm. Um, peer pressure is another one when you have, you know, friends that, you want to go out to the bars, want to go out to party or even at a house party, you know, which you think might be safer than going to a bar, but there's alcohol there, there's coolers full of beer, there's, mm -hmm. you know, shots. And, you know, when you're in that environment, you definitely, you know, I think naturally feel some pressure. And then sometimes you have people that are actually encouraging you and really mm -hmm. pushing you to drink or to take shots. Yeah. So that's, and they don't always know what, what's, what they're going to open up if, you have just one glass of wine. Mm -hmm. Didn't you have a, a client once that told you there's a difference between what they give you at a bar and, and your home pour? She called it a home pour. And I, I like was like, that. what is a home pour? And she said, you know, a home pour is when you fill the glass all the way up to the top. So <laughs> the restaurant pour is three fingers. <laughs> I thought that was the best. I still use that term all the time. <laughs> Love that. That was pretty funny. <laughs> Uh, that next one on your list, and yes, uh, we do have, Joseph does have a list here. Um, the next one's lack of family involvement. And, you know, um, early on, there are studies that indicate the likelihood of a person getting involved in substances or other uh, kind of uh, behaviors that are unwanted when you're, they're growing up in their growing up years decreases drastically if the family just eats dinner together like twice a week. I think that has to do with family involvement. I think when you're sitting, looking at your kids, looking at your spouse, looking at the people around you, it, there's some accountability in that. Mm -hmm. I, like, I, I know what's going on in your life and I care what's going on in your life. Yeah. All of us, you know, human beings want to belong. And if they don't have a family to belong to, they will find the place to belong and it's not always good when they're when they're young and they're left up to their own devices um one of the other things is uh taking something that's highly addictive so you know there's a difference between smoking marijuana and using heroin mm -hmm. you know there's a significant difference and you know i've heard a lot over the years with like specifically methamphetamine how 
you know, some people use methamphetamines one time and they are immediately hooked on it, you know, and can't get off of it, can't let it go. And then there are other people that, you know, really have used it once or twice and it, you know, wasn't their thing. So at any time you engage in, in taking something highly addictive, then you're running the risk of being one of those people who immediately is hooked on something. Mm-hmm. There's a really interesting phenomenon that's happened over the past number of years um, where we're seeing people in treatment that aren't that don't meet the like norm of who we would see in treatment. And, and one is the housewife who becomes addicted to methamphetamine because mm-hmm. of the demands on her and, you know, not having the energy to do things, starting with diet pills. And then it just kind of increasing to methamphetamine because it can make you for in the beginning kind of superwoman like you can get it all done and and still have a smile on your face and the other is um like high functioning people who end up using heroin and it starts with using uh over-the-counter opiates uh, prescribed by a doctor for like a chronic pain condition or an injury when the doctor stops writing you the prescriptions which they are doing a lot now Mm-hmm. because we, I don't want to get on a soapbox and make this another hot topics <laughs> episode, but we have this stupid idea in America. That's like, if we, if we give you a consequence, you'll stop the behavior as if addiction um, is just something that can be consequenced away. Mm-hmm. A person that uses opiates, their body physically becomes dependent on the substance. They need it to just be normal and a person with chronic pain, damn it, it needs to be medicated. But when the medication stops for whatever reason, physically a person experiences so much discomfort that they will turn to other things and you can Mm -hmm. buy opiates on the street, but they're very expensive. So eventually that person who normally would have never turned to heroin, you can get heroin a lot cheaper. And so uh, they end up, you know, in our treatment centers for um, heroin addiction. And it's like, this doesn't seem to fit. Mm-hmm. Well, that, there's a big thing going on. I know lots of people have heard about it, you know, like this opioid epidemic. Um, I would tell people right now, if you have not ever used an illegal substance or you've only dabbled, this is not the time to start. Mm-hmm. There are too many problems with the the black market illegal substances especially in the line of cocaine methamphetamine and heroin they're mixing it with things that kill you right Mm -hmm. now yeah because they want theirs to be the best and they want word to get out they dealers people who who create the drugs they want theirs to be like that was potent, man. That was the best. And so they just really pushed the envelope and, you know, they're not chemists in a laboratory, (laughs) you know, they might go, Oh, how much did I just put in? Whoops. Let me put a little more. So, you know, you don't have consistency. If you get a blood pressure pill, one that you get at CVS is like, is the same as you get the one from Walgreens when it comes to like, some heroin, one baggie of heroin is not equivalent to the other. They're different strengths, different, all kinds of things. So it's Mm -hmm. just don't, don't start today. Don't, don't dabble. And if you're a a seldom user, just don't, don't right now. Agreed. It's my little PSA. (laughs) (laughs) 
I would go as far to say don't ever, but <laughs> well, you know, in five years we'll right readdress time. it. <laughs> yeah. We'll readdress it. My husband always says when he's like 80, he's gonna smoke marijuana. He's never used substances in his life. And he's like, wow. when I'm 80, Willie does it. I'm gonna see what it's what's all what it's all about. <laughs> yeah. Wow. It's it's amazing to me. And it it'll it'll I always tell people like it'll be legal here in Texas at some point, but we're gonna be like the caboose bringing in that, you know, coming in on that train like it'll be such a conservative, you know, state that it, it won't be anytime soon, I don't think. Yeah, but gosh, um, mm-hmm. yeah, Wait. all the different celebrities that are coming out with their own you know, stringer. Their own string. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it's it's uh, well, gosh, um, our um, our department up at uh, UNT, they go to Portugal each year, each year on a like study abroad. And Portugal, they completely changed their their whole structure when they legalized substances. They had a really really bad problem with substance use, and criminal behavior was part of that because people. Who weren't employable because of their addiction would st- you know stole and stuff to get the, their substances they now have legal addiction uh, legal use of substances and mm. it's completely changed their country just amazing things have happened over there i, I don't know if we if that could happen in the united states we're a different people uh, but um, it, it's interesting to me to look at other countries and how they have addressed uh, use. Um, mm-hmm. For instance, in Thailand, they have such a problem with addiction. Methamphetamine is, was one of the really problematic ones. We had a, a couple of women come one summer over to the university and they stayed the whole summer and I got to spend a lot of time with them. And they were from Thailand and they were, the, they were in the United States um, looking at treatment and how we did treatment and what we offered so they could take it back to their country they worked for the government and they were going to develop programs and the the government the thai government put so much money into the treatment like you know we have all this trouble getting funding they had funding but they couldn't get people to come to treatment for Mm. even for free because the stigma of use of addiction in thailand is so great like families disown their children if they have addiction. So we can't get money for treatment, but over there, there's all the money for treatment. It was just such a, it's culturally, it's just so different depending on where you are. So it Mm -hmm. has to be treated differently depending on, you know, the culture of the person. Absolutely. So, um, I think we ought to give the list of the things that people can be diagnosed as addicted to. Okay. That are substances. So we've got alcohol, of course. So that that's that's one. Yep, you can buy it on any street corner. But yes, it's highly, highly addictive. And if you are addicted to it, you likely need doc- a doctor or medic medical uh, assistance to detox. It is a mm. it's dangerous to detox on your own. Yeah. Can't stress that enough. Like if you're a regular drinker, you're drinking heavily, you know, consistently, you probably need to, you know, go through a medical detox process or at least work with a doctor in order to, you know, either gradually step down or Mm -hmm. there are medications that they use in detox facilities Mm -hmm. to help you because you're at a high risk of seizures and and things that can lead to death. Yeah. And you can work with your uh, primary care doctor. It's something you probably wouldn't be as easy or as highly recommended, but they'll, you can work 
work with them. You don't have to go to the hospital uh, and be hospitalized. It's probably easier that way. But so I don't want anyone to think that they have to tell everyone and, and give up everything in their life to treat addiction. You don't have to. The other one is, uh, the next one is caffeine. Uh, oh, caffeine related. So I can actually be addicted to caffeine. I hate to say that, but um, yes, and I am. And There's I'm just going to live with it. <laughs> I'm going to live with it. I'm just going to be addicted. Yeah. Uh, the withdrawal is, ugh, God, the withdrawal is hard. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm going to just have it for now. I have my one cup of coffee every morning and that's about it. Oh. But I used to drink Coca-Cola and Dr. Pepper by the gallons. Just insane and i remember when i stopped having headaches and you know being irritable and all of the, all of the things that go along with stopping i don't drink sodas i haven't in over three years but i drink tea just unsweetened tea mm. and uh, i tried to uh stop just a couple of weeks ago and i drank water all day and i came home and i had this throbbing headache i was like what yeah. is wrong oh caffeine drank a little caffeine headache was gone off to the races. No more, <laughs> no more freedom from caffeine. All right. And we'll wrap up since we have talked so much about it, but just to finish off that list, cannabis, marijuana, you know, uh, hallucinogens, opiates, um, sedatives, um, uh, stimulants like amphetamines, methamphetamines and tobacco, nicotine. So addictive. Uh, I would say that's probably one of, if not the <laughs> The hardest thing for people to let go of is tobacco. I so. I'm Nicotine. grateful. I've never, I've never had a problem with it. Thank God. Yeah. I got lucky. I used to, when I was younger and hung, hung, would go to the bars with friends and stuff and have a drink. I always felt like I needed to smoke while I drank, but I never mm-hmm. smoked outside of that, that situation. So I'm really glad that oh, I good. never became addicted to it. Good. You're way too pretty to drink, to smoke. <laughs> Well, I think this has been a great deal of information. Yeah. I hope this has helped someone. I do too. And I, I think, you know, if you're struggling with addiction, there are tons of resources. Um, something that's free and easy to start immediately, like we talked about earlier, is AANA or any of the anonymous groups. And you can find those, you know, online very quickly. Um, if you're not sure about treatment or you're not sure about, you know, outpatient versus inpatient, I think it's a great opportunity to find a therapist, speak with someone, get some more information. And you can also call treatment facilities and they will, you know, do assessments and, and different things to kind of help you make the decision to go inpatient or outpatient. Absolutely. So, if all else fails, shoot us an email. We might be able to put you in the right direction. We might be Absolutely. able to send you to the right person. Absolutely. I know I've developed a ton of resources over the years. That's one of the one of the big parts of you know the job that I do is helping people with resources because so many people just don't know where to start. It's, it's, it is hard. It is hard, but just start. Well, I think this was really great information. And remember, knowledge leads to a life lived better. Thank you for listening to Life Live Better with Paula and Joseph. 